Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 366 of The Virtual Couch. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. And let's let's get to it today, although I am going to do a little bit of business. But today we have Dr. Jennifer Finlayson-Fife on for her fifth appearance on The Virtual Couch. And I did a quick check, and Jennifer has a couple of episodes that are in my top 10 downloads of all time, including, I did not realize, the number one most downloaded episode, which was from March 19th, of 2018. So almost five years ago to the day, depending on when you listen to this episode. So I highly recommend you go back in the archives and listen to Jennifer's previous episodes, all four of them. But today we we cover a lot of topics. And one of the things that I honest to goodness love about talking with Jennifer is that she is, of course, a, a very well-known, well-respected, knowledgeable clinical psychologist. And according to her website, she teaches couples and individuals how to strengthen their relationships overcome relational and sexual roadblocks, and increase their capacity for intimacy, love, and sexual expression. But she also has an amazing podcast called Room for Two, and it is a subscription-based podcast, and and it is worth every penny. And I have no problem, I think I shared in the last episode, and I do it again today, or in this episode, that I absolutely listen to it, and I believe it has helped me in my own couple's work, because I really feel like there is no scarcity of, of help or knowledge if you are a mental health professional. So we hopefully we're all looking for new information or things that can help us and, and help our clients. Um, I mean, on that note, I feel like I would hope that if you are working with a therapist or a coach, that they are continuing to evolve and grow and self-confront and uh, really understand that if they know what they know, then what comes along with that is an absolute awareness and admission that there are for sure things that they are not aware of and that they don't know. So it only makes sense that if we're asking our clients to sit with discomfort and grow and listen and learn and self-confront and study and just seek knowledge that that we are willing to do the same. So Jennifer and I talk a little bit about that today, too, and and I really enjoyed that. And one of the things that I absolutely loved is uh, Jennifer said that we could just jump right in and share this from the beginning. But I had submitted what I would like to talk to with her assistant. But she said that she really hadn't had a chance to dive into the topic that I had shared. And when I initially set up the interview, this was a couple of months ago, I really felt passionate about a topic that I wanted to share as well. And I had spent the morning just kind of feeling like I'm not sure if I really want to go into that topic. But what if Jennifer spent a lot of time preparing? And I had had a clinical supervision with my my associate, formerly known as intern Nate Christensen. And it was fun because Nate and I just talked about even the concepts of, all right, it's okay if I just want to bring things up. And just be in the moment. And uh, of course, I could change my mind in the last couple of months. So I went into the interview just a little bit more wanting to just explore a lot of different topics. And she was absolutely down for that. And that's what made, I think, this interview a lot of fun. And we talked about everything from ADHD, ADHD and relationships. We talked about how as a therapist, and this is the thing that I was just thinking about so much the morning that we had recorded, was how do you, how do you start with a couple that we know that they don't know what they don't know. And they, they are coming to us because they really are struggling to communicate about a lot of different things. But we're trying to sell them on this concepts of interdependence and differentiation and sitting with discomfort. And what does that even look like to not need your partner to tell you that you're okay? And let me tell you, the topic that I had initially suggested that we do a podcast about, we did get to that. And what, what that is, is I end up working with a lot. I mean, I work with a lot of couples. And I work with people who will come to me and they maybe are listening to the Waking Up to Narcissism podcast or they've heard me talk about emotional immaturity or narcissistic traits or tendencies and and maybe my couple's method using my four pillars of a connected conversation and why do they try that at home and it doesn't quite work and, and is my husband the narcissist? Am I the narcissist? So I get a lot of that. So then I end up working with people and we reframe it. We start talking about you know, narcissistic personality disorders, a tiny percentage of the population but I agree or I believe that we are all emotionally immature in a lot of different ways until we get the tools to learn how to communicate. We can self-confront. And so I work with, I mean, for the most part, I end up working with a lot of couples and then I'll end up breaking off with the men. And then I can have a wife that will say, I just want him to be honest. I just want him to be able to self-confront. I want him to take ownership and accountability. But in reality, it has probably been a long period of time that has led up to the people coming to therapy or finding the right therapist or somebody that is offering the tools, the right tools. So in this scenario that I'm describing, then let's say that the the man starts to wake up to his own emotional immaturity and he starts to do his best to take ownership and 
but it's still hard to sit with discomfort and it's hard not to fire back. And so the wife at some point is saying, well, this is all I want is I want him to do this. But then um, when he does it, then how can she, it's not just easy for her to say, oh, okay, um, it's been a week or two. So now I completely trust him. But if, if she doesn't, then he gets frustrated. And so I talked to Jennifer about at what point do you just say, you know, hey, let's lean in versus listening to your body and your body keeps the score. And, and when there's some, maybe the trauma or the complex post-traumatic stress disorder of relationships. And so there's just a lot of factors in there. But when you're really trying to help someone become a better version of themselves, that's one thing. And then how do you communicate that effectively to a spouse? And so we have a really good conversation around, she works a lot in this model of differentiation. And then I talk openly about my four pillars of a connected conversation, which are based off of emotionally focused therapy. And you will find that people will say that they are in a camp of one or the other. And I feel like they they go together. I feel like I am a huge fan of getting people to work on their own stuff and get to a point where uh, they realize that they can't manage their own emotions through their other partner. But they also need a tool to be able to communicate effectively because we have different expectations of marriage and we have different meanings of uh, everything from words and situations, parenting, finances, from, from the way that we grow up. So I just, I really enjoy the conversation that we have because we touch on a lot of those different areas. And as a matter of fact, it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, one of the, my favorite things to do is just be real with Jennifer and get her to laugh. And I have a, I have long since said that when I truly embraced that I myself am simply who I am and I love what I do and I love people and I love humor. And I personally find it difficult to turn off the humor track that is inside of my own brain. The, the, and that was going to be how I'm going to show up as a therapist and as a podcaster as myself. And if people don't want to work with me or listen to me, that is absolutely no problem. I think on an interview recently, I was getting lovably worked up about this. And I said something like, and if somebody wants to tell me that they don't like the way that I podcast, or they think that I should do something different, or if they want to tell me how I should do my podcast or my therapy or my life, well, they can go, they can go bless themselves, which I thought that sounded really nice. And Jennifer laughs and in this podcast, and I think we have some very real moments as human beings. So that's a lot of fun. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of business here, and I would love for you to just stay present for about another minute, minute and a half, but I also am a podcast listener, so if you feel the need to fast forward, then I will not be offended because I really want you to hear the content today. But you can find more information about Jennifer at her website, finlayson-fife.com, and I'll have that in the show notes. And I highly recommend her podcast or courses. And on that note, here we go. While I have you, find the show notes on this episode, where whether you're listening on a podcast app or if you're watching on the Virtual Couch YouTube channel, there will be a link tree link. And if you're not familiar with that, I believe that it is something like uh, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash virtual couch. And that will actually then take you to a uh, an amazing what amalgamation uh, cornucopia of all the links that have everything to do with everything that I am doing. So if you go there, I would highly recommend signing up for my newsletter. Do that first and foremost, and that will fill you in on a lot of different things as they come out. But I have an updated Magnetic Marriage um, standalone course that is coming out very, very soon, and, and I'm very excited about that. I have a Magnetic Marriage workshop that is available right now. It's 90 minutes. It's $19, and it gives you basically just a lot of information on how to relationship. And then I have a, a new, uh, brand new trailer for the very, very soon to be released True Crime Meets Therapy podcast called Murder on the Couch with my daughter, Sydney. And please go watch that trailer. It is literally going out as I hit publish on this episode. And she is hilarious. And we've recorded some episodes. And I'm, I'm excited about this podcast. I really am. I also have a new podcast coming out based off of my best-selling book, He's a Porn Addict, Now What? An Expert and a Former Addict to Answer Your Questions um, with the, my co-author, Joshua Shea. We've got a whole season in the bank there. And we go into a lot of detail that I think is going to help people that are struggling to overcome pornography as an unhealthy coping mechanism. And on that note, my online pornography recovery program, The Path Back, is it's amazing. I cannot say enough good things about that. And I have to be honest, compared to a lot of other courses, I, it is affordable. The weekly group calls are amazing. That's one of my highlights of the week. And then go check out the Waking Up to Narcissism podcast because the numbers there are now on equal ground as the virtual couch. And the feedback, though, is 10 to 1. I mean, people really feeling seen and heard and understood. And they ask questions. Boy, do people ask questions. I have a private women's Facebook group for women that are in narcissistic or emotionally immature or abusive relationships that is thriving. And that has led to a premium podcast on the Apple podcast app um, that is called Waking Up to Narcissism Questions and Answers because I have so many questions 
And, and it is a population of people that are just dying for answers. And the proceeds from that podcast go to a nonprofit to help women in these types of relationships. And then please go follow me on Instagram, uh, Tony Overbay underscore LMFT. I might, I might be opening up a spot or two for some one-on-one coaching. So I would love for you to reach out to me if you are interested. And then the last but not least, go find me on TikTok of all places. Um, I'm recording a lot of short therapy and mental health related clips. And I want to tell you that I don't care about numbers. I've always said that. I just want to help. But then if I'm being honest, watching a TikTok video go to uh, three quarters of a million views in the span of a couple of days with, uh, I don't know, a thousand comments of people feeling seen and heard and validated, it is absolutely just wild. It really is. It just makes you want to create more because you just want to help more. And I typically don't go into all of this detail, but I know Jennifer brings out the masses. This is an uh, incredible interview with her. I am grateful for any new listeners that are here. You are in for a treat. So with that said, let's get to my interview with the virtual couch favorite, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson. Bye. Come on in, take a seat on the virtual couch. <laughs> okay. No, that's good. So uh, welcome, Jennifer. I think this is maybe your fifth time on the couch, the virtual couch. Could be. So welcome back. Thank you. All right. Let me just so, close a couple things really okay. fast. You talk more, yeah. please. Well, you know what I wonder as well, and I was even going to, when I was thinking about the things, I would just love to know if you have thoughts on, and you may not, yeah. but ADHD and relationships, and I'm very open about my ADHD, yeah. and that's taking me down this path of where I wonder if having 900 tabs open does anything as far as <laughs> yeah. the bandwidth of a podcast. I don't know. Do you, do you yeah. have much experience with ADHD and relationships when coaching uh, or therapy? Yeah, actually, because like everybody in my family has a little bit. <laughs> okay. Okay. Although I don't know if I think of myself as as an expert on it, though. Yeah. If I, certainly a topic I'd be happy to talk about. I just started yeah. doing a little bit of research on it because I notice it more the more that I I'm do a little parallel processing and understanding what mine looks like in my relationship. Cause there's rejection yeah. sensitivity and there's impulsivity and some of those things that can be uh, yeah. play a role. So, all right, maybe that's our sixth episode. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, often, that is, often ADHD people marry someone who's more organized and, you know, or more creative, innovative people or they're yeah. in that sort of expansive and then they kind of marry someone that's the structure and the, and so then there's that tension that can get played out, even though they both kind of wanted a little bit of what the other had, but it can play out in, in conflict. Um, and It's like, okay, sure, sure. because first of all, my first thought was, okay, I have seen this organization that my wife has, and it does look fascinating. I mean, it intrigues me. But there was a, there's a book by Hallowell and Rattay called ADHD 2.0 that I now refer to as scripture. It's really, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. But there's one part where I will say this, and then we can move on, but they lay out this concept where apparently non-ADHD people, when they're, they almost these switches where when they're doing their thinking switch is also down. And when the ADHD person is doing their thinking switch is still going thinking, thinking. Yeah. yeah. And that one. So then when I see something more novel, then I'm going to go do that. And then when somebody That's says, well, why don't, yeah. And that one resonated to me so much because, well, of course I'm going to go do something else if it's really cool. But then if my wife's saying, well, why don't you finish what you were doing, then I don't have a good answer for that. Well, because I didn't, because something else came up. And, uh, right. but, but, but then being aware of that's been nice because then I have to build in that pause. And, yeah, it's and that. an interesting concept. I, you know, I, anyway, I'll, I'll say this and then we can move on to what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Like I, I have a sister in law. We used to work together back when I was working for my brother's company. The two of us were working for him in the summer between school semesters and so on. And she's just one of these people that's like organized on top of things. She just, she just has a good, and so we would be doing parallel things, the exact same thing, which was lots of just clerical, like stamping and organizing. Uh, and and she was just so much faster at it than me. And I'd be like, just trying so hard to keep up. And I would have to like make my mind stay on the activity yeah. because my mind would go to other things, which is a part of who I am, right? I was, yes. my mind was like figuring out ideas and things, but it would slow me down. And so I'd be like, what is the matter with me? Why am yeah. I so much why is she able to be so efficient so on task at all times it's just not really the way my brain worked yeah 
But I like it because that would kind of speak to even almost this spectrum concept, because if you're a little bit off and if I'm just I need to make jokes, I need to go get water, I need to find something else to do and come back. Right. I'll do. And the then they also my family are much more so like I look like the organized one. You do. OK. How fun is that? Right. I mean, that, yeah. well, I just look like the one who's more on task anyway. Uh, and so, so anyway, it's it, it's interesting because I love a lot of people that are not particularly orderly in their way of thinking and doing things and there's a lot of gifts that come with it and then things that are are there my son right now is on his way flying here but he forgot his wallet did remember his passport um yeah i don't want to talk about him <laughs> but it's a little bit like wow you know yeah. it, it, no that's not easy so, yeah. Okay. Great. Well, okay. I think we even started with this too, was I love your honesty about not being 100% sure what we were going to talk about today. And then I love it because I had emailed Christy a month ago and said, I want to talk about this. And I kind of forgot about that, which maybe is part of this ADHD thing we're talking about. <laughs> and so then I felt like, oh, I, I need to let her know. So I sent some stuff over this morning. So I'm, I do have some thoughts, but staying on this note a little bit too, I feel like maybe that the way that ADHD does show up is it does bring a lot of discomfort. And I really have had to recognize, and lately I'm on this kick on the virtual couch talking about what we do with our discomfort. And so I think that at times I want to then quickly turn to get that dopamine hit of novelty instead of Mm. sit with with feelings or discomfort. And then I'm watching that in my couple's situations where some, even if they're using a a really healthy framework to communicate, it's still going to be uncomfortable. And then yeah, I feel like ADHD person is really, really good at distracting or mm. saying, but but you don't understand to get out of that discomfort because mm. by nature, that's what we do. Because if we're doing mm. something and that thinking switch keeps coming up, we're used to following that. So I don't know. Yeah, can I just yeah. give another idea about that? Yeah. Human beings are always re- wrestling with anxiety and our ability mm. to stay present and be living life within the reality of life. So that's a human challenge. People that are more impulsive or ADHD are going to bounce quickly to a new idea. They bounce away, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And they move into activity. But, you know, somebody who's more organized or routinized may well handle it by moving into routine, by mm. moving into. So that it's not necessarily more that ADHD people are less able to be present. Mm. So. So what I mean is that the mind is organizing and managing stress in the ways that it knows how. I like well, the other thing I would say is some people are very, very anxious and are really struggling with self-regulation. And it looks more like ADHD than yes. it is. Yeah. And so there may be an ADHD element there, but it might be more of an anxiety response getting handled through st- distraction, through high, what's the word, frenetic energy, but that's more about anxiety. Well, okay. And while I'm just talking non, I'm giving some theories here, but the book also has a great chapter on medication, this ADHD Mm 2.0. And it does say that the ADHD medication when administered properly is far more, I don't know, efficacious than other medications. And Mm -hmm. it says that how it can, it's the only thing that can change somebody's life within an hour. But then if the wrong, if it's being taken, I think if somebody with anxiety takes it, it amps that anxiety. And so I will have people tell me, oh, I'm ADHD yeah. as well. But they say, but every time I take medication, I just get really jittery or anxious. Yeah, yeah. And and when I took medication, I felt like hope. I mean, it is all of a sudden, yeah. everything came yeah, into, that's a into good focus. Diagnostic. Yeah, right. It's the primary factor, anxiety. Absolutely. Also, yeah. ADHD really shows up prior to age 12, when it's yeah. really just ADHD. So it's a fundamental feature. So this same son, you know, it's my child on the autism spectrum. That was a co-occurring reality. And yes, when he started taking it, it's like his whole life changed. It's like, it was, it was, you know, I became an addict to his medication because because when he was taking it, he was able to self-regulate. He was much more capable socially. He was kinder to his siblings. Like it just helped him get a handle on something And he didn't, we sometimes wanted to give him medication holidays because we worried a little bit about a younger person taking medication. He never wanted to take them. He's like, everybody gets upset with me when I'm not taking it. And, you know, his ability to be social was, would go up. So it was a definite indicator that that was 
not an issue. I mean, maybe he felt some anxiety because of ADHD, but yes. that was not the primary issue. Yeah. No, I love that too, because man, look at it. We're now the, I'm going to get to be able to put ADHD in the title with you. <laughs> and I'm, I'm so excited oh, about it. No, I'm, I'm getting about it, Jennifer. I am. Um, but I had this situation where after I was, I had been on my medication and I didn't get my diagnosis till 46. So a few years ago, and I'm a year or two year into it. I'm supposed to go get a urine test to show that I'm I don't know that that's what you do after a year, but I mm-hmm. was so killing it at work and everything and clients and writing a book and the podcast and I didn't mm-hmm. want to take the time. And finally, they were going to cut me off. And this is a funny thing I've learned since is that there's two time frames with ADHD. It's either now or later. So I was going to do it later. And then later right. became now when they were going to cut off my supply. Yeah, exactly. But, but, this, but I, this is, I think the story that this is, this relieved my anxiety was I would take it in the morning, like went and did the, the urine test later in the day. And then I get the call maybe a day or two later. And they said, we need you to come in. And I thought, oh no, they found, I, I'm, I must have some sort of something I'm going to die from in my urine. And I went in there and she said, hey, so why, why is there no methylphenol date, the ADHD medication Ritalin? Why is that not in your urine? And I, I didn't understand. And I was saying, I don't know. I just, I take it and I pee. And then I realized, I said, oh, wait a minute. You, you, so you think I'm selling it to middle school kids because it wasn't in the, the, and then, and so then I said, oh no, the last time I took it, I think it was maybe one o'clock in that afternoon. And then, and I have the immediate release. So then I had metabolized it because I drink a lot of water and, and, and actually that made me feel good because it is something that was out of my system by the evening. And at that point I felt like, okay, you know, this is. This is really helpful. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's um, great. Yeah, it can be very helpful. But ADHD, my go-to is I make jokes about everything internally. So when I I really did say, you think I'm selling it to middle school kids. And that was not funny to say to a psychiatrist, apparently, because they didn't enjoy that joke at all. And I thought it was hilarious. Um, But, you know, you you live and you learn a little bit, you know. Okay, so one thing that I was curious to get your take on. So I would love to know what you either tell people or what your idea of the ideal relationship is. And the tiny bit of backstory is that when I talk to people and I think I'm so clever, when I say I laid out from the womb till the wedding, and I just said that to Christy and I said, man, I'm trademarking that because I never put it that way before. But and I, so then I can talk about abandonment and attachment issues in our childhood. And then we show up in relationships and we're, we're trying to be trying to figure out how do I show up so that this person will like me because I, I don't want mm-hmm. to be alone. And then I, I always say we then we're enmeshed in codependent and then we go through life and we have experiences and then we say, this is how I feel and this is how I feel. And if we're immature, then we jump back into enmeshment like, oh, I can't believe you think that. And then we're afraid of abandonment. So we jump back in. Yeah. And so then I'm trying to tell people, all right, the goal is differentiated and interdependent. There's going to be invalidation and all those things. But mm-hmm. then at that point, I realize I sound like like a, a Peanuts adult character where I think, think that people are just like, wah, wah. What are you and talking they, about? Yeah. Totally. And I don't know why it took me so long, Jennifer. Maybe it's because I felt like I was getting the validation by people nodding their heads and, oh, I want that. But then I realized, oh, they don't even know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and so do you, how do you or do you lay out the, here's where we're headed? Or do you just say, um, I do a little bit sometimes through like role play or role modeling, what differentiated Mm. sounds like, and people can recognize it almost immediately as mature, right? Mm. Dealing with an issue, but not reactive or punitive or manipulative, but like anchored and centered. And so, you know, I do think it, that's sometimes the quickest way to give people a picture of it. But it's very conceptual for a lot of people. They know that there's something, this is really like what I actually think is that this is something you feel your way towards. It's something Mm. you live your way towards. And then when you put language to it, it sounds like interdependent and self-regulated. You use those words, but it's very hard to describe in words, especially because most people do not experience it. And so you're trying to use language that we don't have a lot of in our culture and society because most of us are pretty immature. And so most of us are living pretty reactively in our relationships. So we know those words well. And Mm -hmm. so it's like trying to give people a sense of something to reach towards. And sometimes the best way to do it actually is to help people see what they're actually doing that is undermining the friendship. Because if they can stop doing it, what happens is their brain then has to organize at a higher level 
if they mm. won't allow themselves to do the indulgent behavior. And that's how people start to feel what more mature feels like. Like if I'm not going to manipulate my wife, but I really would like to have sex with her. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I need to just be more honest. Okay. But that feels scary. But yes. if I'm not going to be manipulative and deceptive and I do really desire a sexual relationship, then maybe I need to tolerate the exposure of speaking more honestly. Well, then they start to be, well, you know, it doesn't mean that the partner's just going to be like, Oh, thank you so much for being honest. They may yeah. push in the opposite direction to get you back. But, people start to feel better when they're functioning at a higher level. They start to acknowledge that something there feels more solid, more respect worthy. And at a minimum, they start to respect themselves more. Yeah. And, you know, they're actually more of a force to be reckoned with in their marriage than when they were in their more petulant or reactive state. So I like your question because it's often like, how do you show people what we're talking about? But I find the most helpful thing is to help people see what they're doing and how it's interfering with their own goals. Yeah. Right? Okay. And I like what you're saying. And it's funny because I wanted to make the joke. And now that we've established ADHD, I wanted to say at some point people are listening right now and hearing the want, want from both of us. That's fine yeah. because that is okay. But I also feel like, and then if somebody is when you hit on that discomfort for someone, if I'm going to go back to the ADHD or the rejection sensitivity is, man, I, do you watch that? Do you see that person, not necessarily just an ADHD person, but shut down? Or do you see that person try to cue up their, yeah, but I mean, when, are you watching that happen as well? Uh, give me a little more of an example. You yeah, mean like so, session when I'm, give me a, give me a. Yeah. So, so I feel like I love everything you're saying. And then I'm, I think maybe this is the part where now having been doing couples therapy for so long, I start thinking, I, I don't want to call it, say cynically, but uh, the worst case scenario of what happens with that. So when I get people then to that place of where, no, it's okay. And you're going to feel uncomfortable and let me show you what, what that looks like. That then when that person now is met with having to really express themselves that I just, I watch that reactivity or I watch yeah. that that hesitancy or hesitation. And then I, I think that can be a hard thing to get somebody to move through. Yeah, it is. It is hard. But I would say when I'm being my most helpful, I'm not trying to get people to do it. Yeah. I'm trying to help people see how they're capitulating to their fear, how they're, how they're moving into a guarded or deceptive position. And mm -hmm. it becomes their own courage or their own unhappiness with themselves that pushes them into a clearer position. Now, the person on the other side may then get reactive or may yeah. want to push away from it. But then I would go to that person yeah. and help them see how they're handling themselves in the face. You know, you say you want to know your partner, but then when he starts to talk straight to you, yeah. you punish him for that. Yeah. So I'm just helping them see what they're doing because we're so good at lying to ourselves, all of us. We're good at telling ourselves the story that we like about ourselves, yeah. not the one that accounts for the most data. And so when someone is speaking honestly to you or when a therapist or coach is being helpful, they're showing you something that you tend to stay blind to and giving you your mind the opportunity to deal with that truth better. Yeah. And that's what helps people get stronger is their minds accommodate more truth. About yeah, and I love your room for two podcast. I do. I listen to that often. And then I find myself becoming a little pulling some Jennifer cards out in my own sessions. Yeah, of course, great. I take credit for them, you know, but I feel like that. <laughs> so, no scarcity mentality in mental health is what I, tell, what I tell myself at least but I but I think you've said some things like at one point I think you said something like we put a version of ourselves out and we say hey validate this and then the person yeah, okay. is saying but what if I can't then it's a, a how dare you but so right. I really like having that opportunity to say okay well this is some information and yeah it's an opportunity to self-confront but that doesn't mean the person Absolutely has to. And I find that, yeah, when you frame it in a certain way, I feel like then it's almost a welcoming opportunity. Okay, I'll take a look at that. And maybe, yeah. and, and that does seem to go well more than it doesn't. Maybe it's just yeah. because people are, are secretly, we want to, we want to grow, we want to be better, but that's, it is scary. Yeah, the, it is scary. And I, I, you know, the psyche is pushing us to be whole. It is pushing mm, okay. us okay. To, like that. to accommodate more truth. 
But we then also have our reactive mind that's afraid of it. We're afraid to go to our shadow. We're afraid to go to the mm -hmm. dark parts of ourselves or the parts of ourselves that we haven't yet accommodated. And so when our spouse is the messenger, which they often are because they see us better than we see ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, we try to take them down rather than deal with our darker yeah. selves. And yeah. That's marriage. I mean, that's really what marriage is so often. The healthier a couple is, the less pressure it takes to accommodate mm -hmm. more truth. The yeah. more willing they are to look at themselves and how they're impacting their partner and do something about it, not to make the partner happy, but to be a better self in relationship to their partner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. hey, okay. Can I ask you too, Jennifer? Yeah. Uh, I do feel like I, I don't know if we touched on this maybe the last time we spoke, but how we become therapists and we don't think we're doing it to fix ourselves, but then maybe along the way we realize I mean, I, I love that opportunity to self-confront and I have found and maybe even recently where I think I wanted more interaction with my son and he's 19. And so then he threw out this offer to go play golf and I immediately reacted with a pause. And I thank goodness I did a little, I, I was able to get a do over and was very present. But, you know, my wife and I had a good conversation about it and I loved it because she was able to say, hey, here's what that looked like. And, mm -hmm. and I feel like, yeah, when you practice this and there's safety and we're not going to be perfect at it, I was really grateful that she was able to point out a couple of things that, you know, I, and I wanted to immediately defend my ego and say, mm -hmm. oh, no, I, I, you know, I read, read this book and Masculine in the Relationship and I asked for a do-over and I was back and that's a good thing. And I was like mm -hmm. saying, oh, that sounds good to alleviate my discomfort. But instead of let me hear what it was like, what she saw. And she had a few extra details that I think really helped with everything from body language to tone that I wasn't even aware of mm, or, yeah. I, or I didn't want to think, are you finding yourself doing the same thing in your own relationship? Or because I imagine a lot of people feel like, well, you, you must already have all this stuff down pat and maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. I mean, I'm just thinking about your example and trying to, I don't know if I completely followed what you're saying, but I think I know yeah. what you're saying, which is that you're getting feedback from your wife that yeah. was elucidating or showing you something like she could track your mind better than you she could track your mind. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And she's saying like you were making this gesture and you were doing this and that's a hundred percent true. Like spouses can track our yeah. minds. Kids can track our minds. Um, like my teenager was making fun of me yeah. because he's imitating me and my false modesty about something like somebody complimented me. And then afterwards he's like, Oh yeah, that was nothing. <laughs> you know? And the way he's doing it, you know, is like using my words and it's super embarrassing. <laughs> he's totally say, he's saying, I see you mom. You're like, you're not that modest. You know, you, you, you love it. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so our, our kids, our spouses see us, but, but you're asking about in my own marriage, how does it go? Like, what's the, is that, do you have a more yeah. specific question? Like, yeah, give it, yeah I do actually. Well, yeah. So, I mean, have you had those opportunities that are things that you weren't necessarily aware of? And, and I'll tell you a more oh, vulnerable yeah. one for me was my wife. She was sharing with me this concept around sometimes the kids aren't 100% sure or she isn't of which version of me that she was going to get. And thankfully, I was in a spot where I was looking for this feedback. We were talking about some things that I was sharing with her about as a couples therapist. And she said, yeah, sometimes you come in and you were really excited and happy. And, and in essence, I felt like she was saying, I'm making it rain, throwing out dollar bills, you know, that sort of thing. And other times I might, I might come in yeah. and, and I would say, man, I just feel like everybody, I'm just a paycheck and everybody's taking advantage of me. So I'm, I'm you know, using extremes, but I was so grateful to be able to say, okay, let me take a look at that. And is there truth in that? And there really was. And yeah. then I was able to step back and recognize the days where I maybe there's something else going on and then I'm coming in and I'm bringing that into the home and I didn't yeah. like that. So I don't know. Yeah, if you, exactly. yeah. Do you have some of those? Well, yeah, no, I mean, I'm trying to give examples, but absolutely. I mean, I guess I would say that's the thing that's been that I'm probably the most grateful for about my husband is that he really is a kind soul. Like the way that people mm -hmm. will describe him is very kind and not nice necessarily. Do you know what I mean? He's okay. not a nice yeah. guy. He really yeah. is a kind person and he, is willing to be inconvenienced to help other people. Okay. So that is really who he is, but he's also a very honest person and he doesn't, so he's quite loyal. And I actually think he sees me through a bit of a rose colored lens a lot of the time, which <laughs> I like, I won't go <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, but, but on the other hand, he, he is honest and he will be honest with me. And he'll say what he really thinks. And he, he's not saying it usually to get me to think something. He's just willing to reveal his own mind. 
Yeah. And I, I guess while he can get upset sometimes or be mad at me, I don't have the feeling like he's trying to hurt me or there, trying there's not to an agenda there. Me. Yeah. yeah. And so that's extremely helpful. It doesn't mean that when he gives me, you know, says things that are truthful that I'm, you know, I'm often like, ah, you know, I often will react with yeah. it first, yeah. like, you know, no, you're wrong and defensively. But the thing is, he makes himself highly credible because he doesn't have an agenda um, yeah. to hurt me or take me down or even prove his mind to me most of the time. It's usually about just this is what I think or this is what I see or this is what I see you do. And so that's harder to I do care about being honest with myself. Yeah. And I care about being fair to him. I don't mean to say that I'm always being honest with myself and always being fair, right. of course. Yeah. But I do value those things. And so it matters to me to deal with what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also really does make it easier, which I'm really grateful for, because if he were meaner about it or whatever, I could justify not looking at myself. Yes. You know, if he were more defensive or had his own kind of insecurities playing out in that, even if he was saying exactly what's true about me, it would make it easier to justify not seeing myself. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, you know, it goes both ways. I'll give my honest thoughts about things. I'll, you know, I, I do think it's why we get along is because there is a basic sense of honesty and that makes the marriage feel freer. Yeah. Well, I it's like what you said. Um, they're trying to manage each other a lot that they feel, yeah. you, you know, I was working with a couple yesterday and, and the sex is just always awkward and they're t- mm. and the interactions are often awkward, but that's because they are always pretending mm. they really struggle to be honest. And so there's a lot of manipulation and management. I, when I say manipulative, I don't mean dark, mean manipulative. Yeah. I mean, masking, managing what's said, managing what's shown. And rather than I would like to have sex, it's more like, do you want to have sex or what do you have in yeah. mind for tonight or whatever? <laughs> and yeah. and, it, and there's just this kind of constant masking of minds. So it always, there's always pretending. And whenever you're pretending with someone, it's super awkward. Yeah, there's no real it. intimacy. And a lot of couples yeah. do a lot of pretending because they're afraid to tolerate. They don't tolerate more honesty in themselves or in their partner or their spouse punishes a lot if they speak honestly. So they've learned to not do it. But there's, you know, that people claim to love the truth, but the Mm. truth is hard. The truth is challenging. The truth pushes us to grow up. And like you said, we want it, but we avoid it. You know, it's like Jung said something like the information we most need is hiding in the places we least want to look. And that's Mm. that kind of the realities about ourselves that scare us because they push us into growth. But if we, if we avoid them, then they really do run our lives. I agree. And I like that because the more I think we talk about the sitting with the uncomfortable feelings and tell me if you agree and you don't have to agree with this at all, but I feel like we are so unused to doing that, that it isn't as scary as we think it is once we uh, practice it, right? There's a researcher named, well, researcher, writer, Terrence McKenna of olden days. And he used to say, it's like jumping out into the great abyss and finding out it's a feather bed. And I love that example because I feel like when we can sit through some of that uh, uh, discomfort and then I love what you're saying, find growth, then all of a sudden, well, I do. Would you say the psyche is pushed that way? I want growth and now I'm excited about it. Yeah, Yeah, I think the psyche, I mean, Jung talks about this a lot and, you know, that we're striving for wholeness, that that's what our minds are trying to do, or, you know, that our dreams are trying, is the psyche trying to reveal aspects of our lives ourselves that we are tending to not want to deal with. And so it's kind of the psyche pushing towards wholeness, but we have another part of our brain that wants stasis, that wants control, Uh, that wants, it's the ego, right? And mm -hmm. ego, we need the ego, but the ego can be the enemy sometimes because the ego loves control and yet we have so very little control and the more we cling the less and less control we actually have and so we've got two pressures in our psyches but there's certainly one that's pushing us towards growth you know a lot of times when the body is in reaction i had a client who always was having pain and rashing and all this and she would blame her body like my body's turned against me my body doesn't want me to be happy my body's working against me but this 
you know, she started working with a doctor that did this was also a therapist and working with a lot of these kinds of meanings. And as she started to pay attention to her body, she saw that her body was trying to help her. Her body would go yes. into a physical reaction when there was something going on in her relationships that was working against the best in her. And yes. so once she stopped blaming her body and understanding her body wanted her to thrive, well, then it really changed it because first of all, it allowed her to address things that were going on in her life, but allowed her to stop being in a combative relationship with her body that's really trying to sustain her and also allowed her to address things and change things. So her body reacts less, way less now. And even when it does, she sees it as a gift to pay attention to what's happening in her relationships. Oh, that, I mean, the body keeps the score, the Russell Vanderkalk. And I have to tell you as well, I don't ever get a chance to do this, but I've had a couple of people that have reached out to me and said that you've said nice things, referred people if I'm working in the world of emotional immaturity or narcissism or that sort of thing. And I think that that's really come up a lot there where if I'm helping people, I've got these tenants where no one wants to say my partner is narcissistic. So I feel like I meet people where they're at. Um, because if they read material that talks about narcissism, it says, don't finish the paragraph, leave. And no one, no one's going to do that because they're, they don't even know what that means or what that looks like. And so, so I say, raise your baseline, that's self-care, get your PhD in gaslighting, get out of unproductive conversations, set boundaries and know a boundary is a challenge to the emotionally immature. Mm -hmm. And then I talk about, you know, nothing you will do will cause them to have this uh, aha moment or epiphany that they have to come up with that on their own. Mm -hmm. And I feel like what that one's the hardest one for people to break. And I feel like their body ends up being the thing that is the thing that I feel like they eventually realize that every time I try to go back in and and try to make sense of explain caretake, you know, Mm -hmm. that then they start to feel like panic attacks or headaches or memory is a challenge. And so I like what you're saying, because I mean, that that is, I feel like that's the final straw of helping somebody recognize maybe that they aren't safe in the relationship. When their body yeah. is trying to say, I, I'm trying everything. I'm trying anxiety. I'm trying depression. Don't don't make me give you a heart attack. And, and that's yeah. what I think can happen. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Whenever we're trying to control what we don't have control over. Yeah. Especially another, a partner that won't self-confront, you know, oh. you, that, that illusion is often hard to let go of because you want the control, the fantasy yeah. that if you say the right yes. thing, do the right thing whatever, they're going to space themselves, they're going to become a kinder person or whatever. And often, you know, the body is in reaction to that, but also giving up that project is the only chance. Yeah, something will shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So okay, this did actually lead to I think what I initially reached out to ask Christy to bring up was, so when I do get a guy into therapy, and I was even going to tell you a funny thing when we were going to jump on and then I forgot, but I was just talking with my intern, my associate, Nate Christensen, and he's a big brain guy, but he said he just was reading that therapy was initially, someone was uh, saying that therapy was initially for women, and that's why it's all about feelings. That was Freud's, I guess, mm-hmm. goal, and that, and that you know, so men, yeah, it needs to... Women. Okay. And that men need to do things differently. And so that's why, and then he went into this thing about vasopressin and that it's about aggression and that men can feel close even when there is stress or aggression and then mm-hmm. how that can, and I thought that was an interesting thing. I thought mm-hmm. that was really fascinating. Yeah. But where I was going with that was, so I get a lot of men that come to me, I think, because I don't know, maybe it's as simple as I'm a guy. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But then when I can get a guy to feel heard and understood, maybe do a little self-confrontation, mm-hmm. I find that there are times where I have examples where the wife has said, this is what I want. I want this guy who will hear me and open up and stay present. And then and now I, you know, on occasion, I can get a guy to that place. And then mm-hmm. it's as if the wife now starts to push more buttons. And when I did some betrayal trauma training with Dr. Skinner, Kevin Skinner, a long time ago, he would talk about, you know, okay, that they're testing for safety or things may go well. And a couple of years down the road, you know, she may say, I don't, I don't even know if this is, if I should have come back. And, and if the guy says, man, thank you for sharing. I'm here. Okay. It keeps her amygdala calm and, and still testing. But yeah. I have found that I'm curious if you see or what your thoughts are on that. If I do have this per- this guy show up differently and the wife has said, this is all I've ever wanted. But now that more buttons are pressed and I will have a guy all of a sudden now say, well, wait a minute. Now, is she the narcissist or is she the emotionally immature? And I wanted to say, okay, I, I hear you, but let's slow down mm-hmm. a little bit. But it's, I don't know if that's just a, yeah. her her body. Can a change happen too fast? Does it? Yeah. What do you think? Well, I, you know, so a couple things. I, I tend when I'm working with people to not just think, okay, let's, let's say that you have a narcissistic partner 
I mean, there's a lot that I would even say about that because that's oh, me too. Let's just, yes. Let's just say like somebody that emotionally immature has been emotionally immature, has tended to dominate situations yeah. and take too much. Right. And let's say that, that there's the, let's just put it in the, this form that the woman is the one who's been kind of burned by that. And she's yes. exhausted by it. And he's starting to self confront and change. Yes. The way I tend to talk to the person in the woman's position in this example is that your goal isn't just to trust your partner and your goal isn't just to wait until they have become safe. I'm not, I don't really think in that frame so much. The goal is yes. If you're going to choose this person, they need to grow into somebody who's more capable of handling Mm -hmm. themselves while they know you that they need to learn how to be a self without dominating or taking too much. And that matters. But you also, wife, have been operating in a marriage in which you are the overfunctioner. It doesn't look like mm-hmm. it from what I'm saying, but often the I person in a relationship with a narcissist, the person is overfunctioning. They're trying to make things right. They're trying to manage that guy's ego. They're trying yeah, to keep him happy, give him the sex that will keep him. And so they're doing all these things in the fantasy that if they do everything, he will yes. be okay and they will be okay. And so she has to also grow out of that. And let's just say the guy really does start to self-confront and really is dealing with himself. Yeah, there's a certain amount of testing. Are you really legit? Are you really there for me? But what is also, and I'm not saying this is always the case. For me, it means I've got to discern what's happening here. Is this guy really not as developed as he's saying and she can track it? Or is it that... She wants the too little, too late position because then she doesn't have to grow up. That, right? that because yes, somebody that's, that's trying to solve the husband all the time in this case, you know, doing everything to make that person okay is also intimacy avoidant, even though it yeah. doesn't look like it. Yeah. Right? They want to be needed. They want to be the solution. They want to be the one that the guy needs, in a sense. And so that's. Mm-hmm. That's a need-based frame, not an intimacy frame. Somebody that thinks they have to fall all over themselves to prove themselves to the narcissistic guy doesn't have a solid sense of self, isn't clear that being knowable is a safe thing by anyone. Yes. Well, part of the reason they chose this guy is because they don't have to be that known by him when he's the only party, when he's the only show in town in his mind. So if he's growing out of that, that's a very different thing than she wants to actually be known. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of us talk about, I don't feel seen. I don't feel, well, I don't know that many people that actually want to be seen. They just want okay. the good parts to be seen. Yes. And so and so, a lot of times people are complaining about that. Sorry, I've got all this. Hang on one second. Let me just... I have to tell you, Jennifer, as you were saying this, and this is actually, this is so yeah. good because I could talk about this for the light then went through your blinds and shone and it was this, you all of a sudden, you know, the, the skies parted, uh, heaven smiled upon you and then you, you gave <laughs> yeah, the world like, this, this gift. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. Totally. That, that's what it was. Yeah. so uh so her ability to actually be knowable right how many of us Mm -hmm. really want our partner to look into our soul unmitigated right flaws and Mm all i mean you know that takes some real courage Yeah. yeah and so it's often like i still don't trust you i still don't trust you is a way of getting away from that anxiety. Oh, I love that. And, yeah. You know, and there may be things going on on his side, but you don't want to keep his growth from, it doesn't have to be, he must be fully grown up before you deal with yourself. Yeah. She also needs to be dealing with her own overfunctioning and her need to be needed and her anxiety about her worthiness. That is so good. And I feel like this is where, and I would, I mean, there is real, incredibly emotionally immature or strong narcissistic trait and tendency people that are still looking for the buttons to press and the way to manipulate. Yeah. So I do, you know, and I know I work a lot with that population. So that, that, right. And that can be really difficult, but I like what you're saying because I do feel like some point, because if it really isn't the narcissist, I would imagine that's a, in this scenario, we're talking about a wife who then grew up not necessarily seeing the boundaries modeled or secure attachment in childhood. So she didn't know how to say no or, or that sort of thing. And so maybe that has led to that. Yeah. And, and so I know that can be hard, but I love what you're saying because I think this is where it's hard for me because I want to at times just say not to, hey, give him a chance, but I, I, I like this concept of, I, I call it introducing positive tension. 
So now mm-hmm. let's let's have a chance to really use the tools. I've got these four pillars of a connected conversation based off of emotionally focused therapy. And that's where I feel like we no longer have to have the guy just say, no, I get it now. And she says, oh, okay. Now I want her to say, well, tell me more. What, what do you get? What do you understand? What is yeah. different now? Because I find that the real emotionally immature says it. I mean, I get it. I'm telling you, I'm, I get it. I'm ready. And that's where I feel like you'll find quickly how if the guy is really self-confronting or, or able to sit with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, something to say about it. It's not just, you know, like, you know, sometimes people, well, then I went and I apologized. Okay. What did you apologize for? What exactly? Like, if it's deep, if it's true self confrontation, there's something there. I can see that I do this to you. So much, Jennifer. Yeah. Something that I tend to say with people is that, you know, we're all kind, we're all narcissistic. I mean, in a sense, we all start out very self preoccupied, even if we are somebody who, is always nice and can never let anybody be disappointed with us. It's about managing our ego needs. And so there is a self-centric element to it. And as we are willing to self-confront, know other people's experience of us, know ourselves in relationship, we're able to grow out of our egocentrism. So narcissistic people are often egocentric in a particular way. Yeah. But I try to make a distinction with people between narcissistic and narcissistically impaired you know narcissistically Mm. impaired person is a person that is not going to yield they're not going to change they aren't able or willing to actually self-confront they may give all the verbiage and know how to make it look like it but they're not actually in any kind of self-confrontation in the wee hours of the night and that's very different than somebody who's inclined to go one up but is willing to look honestly at themselves and to start dealing with who they are. That's a person that you don't have to be perfect to trust that person. You just have to be with someone who's willing and able to do that. And it matters to them to be a decent human. If it only matters to you and you're trying to convince your narcissistic partner that they should be a decent person, that's not going to go well. If they want to be a decent person and you can tell it and they're willing to deal with themselves and you see them doing it, you know, that's a good person to be challenged with and to be addressing your half of that dynamic with, not because you got to wait for them to be perfect, because you can see that they do want to grow and they want to be better and they're willing to be honest, right? Even if it takes some work sometimes, but they're willing to grow. That's a trustworthy person. The people that get entrenched and stay there and won't, won't be challenged. Well, it's a, not a good choice to be in relationship. No. And And I don't know if I gave you credit for this last time we spoke, but when we spoke a couple of times ago and we were talking about narcissism, you had mentioned everybody's a little narcissistic. And at that time, I I remember feeling a little bit like, well, well, no, I mean, I don't think I think I framed the question wrong, but absolutely right. And then in so I've got the Waking Up to Narcissism podcast, which is now as big as the virtual couch. And in that one, I was very intentional about nine or 10 episodes in. I had an episode called Wait, Am I the Narcissist? And I I really did lay out the narcissistic personality disorders, maybe two or three percent of the population but if you start with we're all emotionally immature that's where i give you a little nod Uh uh, then you know then we can work from there and i have found that is a much better place to operate from and i feel like the people i work with are willing to say okay i can take a look at emotional immaturity but the narcissism i think it just carries so much it's it's out in the zeitgeist so much and there's a lot of negativity yeah in a way that right and be problematic. Yeah. Everybody's ex is a narcissist. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, that is a fact, actually, I've been told I, on TikTok, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so. That's uh, what yeah, you say? That? It's, a fa- it's a fact. I mean, that's what oh, you I'm find out that they, all the, yeah, the, all the exes are, are indeed, the, that's the case. <laughs> um, that, that makes me laugh. So, in that part, I, I so appreciate that too. And okay, if you have a couple more minutes, there is now that I feel like, boy, I, I feel like we've covered all these fun things today as a, from a therapist standpoint. I would love your thoughts on another thing. And maybe I'm wanting you to validate me or, or compliment my fragile ego. Mm-hmm. So there are some of the, there are some groups that I'm a part of and, and I love, and, and it's a lot of them quote you, which is amazing and wonderful. And there will be something that we brought up where someone will talk about, you know, the, the crucible method versus EFT, for example. Mm-hmm. And then people will get pretty, pretty discouraged mm-hmm. about oh, yeah. 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 Right. And I have a copy and paste available now where I say as an EFT therapist and then a thousand couples later or whatever. And I've, I've tried to make it into this four pillars of a connected conversation. Preston Pugmire, who I know you know, helped me create this course. And and so that was the, him helping coach these tangible steps. And, and I love it so much. 
And mm-hmm. so then I feel like then I'm all on board with differentiation and clean up your side of the street and mm-hmm. not looking for that external validation. But I find my copy and paste says that that is amazing. But I feel like sometimes what I'm reading is somebody says, this is all I can do is take care of me. And if my partner doesn't show up, then this is not a viable relationship. And so I've been saying now, well, I feel like the EFT, emotionally focused therapy, my four pillars, that's the conduit to communicate to then maybe help get to that place of differentiation or, but I would love to know your thoughts. Like, do you have just overall thoughts on the EFT versus the the crucible method or those? I mean, I do, I do. I don't tend to like to get into, well, I'm I'm happy to answer it, but I'm just saying, I don't (laughs) tend to like to get in the conversation because I don't feel like I understand EFT enough. Okay. And I'm happy to give you some ideas though, but just like sometimes I will critique sex addiction programs, but I've learned, I don't want to do that because some are very on point and very valuable. So it, so what I do sometimes is I say, if a program is teaching you this idea, I think it's dangerous. If a program mm-hmm. is teaching you this idea, I think it's dangerous. So it's more like that. If it's teaching you this, it will be helpful in my view. Yeah. But I think the fundamental, so first of all, I Adam Miller and these were both people that happened to be in my ward and Hardy, I can't remember his first name right now. They wrote, they co-authored, they were Northwestern students and they co-authored a paper about really laying out the tenets of EFT and differentiation theory and kind of arguing. So so it was very, it's very well written and well done and worth reading. Did I say Adam Miller? I mean, Adam Fisher Fisher and Nathan Hardy. Those are the, the so that's worth reading. I, what I would say in my rudimentary understanding is the question of locus of control or where is the center of change in yeah. these models as they were originally understood. Now, how practitioners use them, it may be very yeah, different. Exactly. Maybe EFT has, has shifted since its sort of initial idea, but that's what I think is the core issue is in the EFT model, it's that we are attached, which we are. We attach at an early age, and then we have attachment styles, which all which I agree with. But the idea of the model is often that change happens through the marriage by the partner being the attachment object that was needed, right? Mm. So validating feelings, reflecting back, communicating in a certain way. And so the change, the locus of control is in the partner. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Now I don't know, you know, somebody might say, no, no, you don't get it. And I may not get it. So I'm I'm not here to say like, I get it. And I know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying that's my view from the yeah. first time that I, you know, I read about it, where in differentiation theory, yes, one attaches, no question. And we attach and we do things in a certain way. And not only do we attach, but we also, so we, not only do we want to be in relationship to others, we also want to be in relationship to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And But the locus of change is within the self. Now, this is not to yeah. say that people don't affect our sense of self. They deeply do. They're very, very entangled with other people. But what the change agent is, is helping people see how they are in relationship to others Mm -hmm. and how they're trying to have a self in relationship to others and the ways that that effort is creating trouble in their relationship to others and themselves and in that awakening to to change their behavior in relationship. So the locus of control is within the self. It's in the self-regulation. And so it's just a different, it's helping people see more truthfully. The problem I have with, if it's in your partner, it's like you both have a half empty tank of gas and you're looking for the other one to fill it up, right? Because people are, your spouse doesn't have it to give usually. Now, I don't mean to say your spouse doesn't affect you. And when they grow, it does positively impact you. But a lot of times we're trying to like show forth love, make our spouse feel loved, give them security. And while it can help a little, I think that it's still got the focus in the wrong place. Now, Mm. I don't know if this is how EFT therapy runs or how it is at this point, but to the degree that that's the model operating in any therapy, like Imago therapy, I think is almost 100% that. And yeah. so to the degree that it's doing that, I think it's only minimally effectual. And there can, yeah. there can be things that are beneficial about a conversation style. I'm just going to sit and validate what I can. I'm not saying that as a tool, there can't be some value in that idea for helping people to settle down, not react and just listen. 
But I think as a kind of fundamental kind of model of change, I think it has some limitations. That's yeah. my no, I, Jennifer, I, I do love that. And I and there's a part of me that feels like, OK, I don't want to now throw my two cents in. But then I realize, oh, wait, we're on my podcast and my people, my people, that sounds very egotistical. But the <laughs> listeners are, are so, you know, I talk about my four pillars all the time. And I actually feel very validated by that because I do feel like I look at and I think you're actually right where I may not even know what EFT. I, I think I've slowly morphed my own version of EFT yeah. into this. So, you know, so I, yeah, right. And so I feel like the model that then I use is it, it really is almost as simple as someone expressing something to their partner and their partner then immediately that has a meaning to them and they can be they can take offense they can yeah. so i you know my first pillar is assuming good intentions or there's a reason why somebody says what they do and i feel like it, it's core is because that's the way that they express themselves or that's the way that they feel like they have to show up in order to be heard and then i you know my second one is you can't tell that person they're wrong or i disagree even if you think they're wrong and you disagree because any of these are going to take the conversation out into the weeds and then my third pillar is, okay, I'm going to ask questions before I make comments. Well, tell me what that means for you. Help me understand. And that's where that discomfort kicks in and some empathy. Mm -hmm. And then I, and then my fourth one, I, I say, stay present and you can't go into a victim mentality. If you follow mm -hmm. those first three pillars and then say, okay, no, you're right. I guess I'm a horrible piece of garbage. No, <laughs> yeah. Rescue me. Right. Uh -huh. And so I do feel like I like what you're saying because I feel like I'm trying to use it as a communication tool to stay present so that then we can self-confront. Yeah. Because I feel like it's too easy for the emotionally immature to take any conversation out into the weeds. Right. Um, and then they never get to accountability or self-confrontation. But I think as right. you're expressing that, why I feel validated is because I, I actually think I have taken that off on a little bit of my own path. And so yeah. when I when I come in and say, oh, I hear people that talk about the differentiation model or then because I validate it. And I feel like maybe they're waiting for me to say, that's dumb. You know, EFT yeah. is it. And I love I love your concept about the locus of, of change uh -huh. because I think you're right. And maybe we're both wrong, but we're both right as well. And that sure feels good. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and I do think communication models, for example, can be very helpful for just giving people tools, something to kind of yeah. anchor their anxiety to as they're walking through a difficult conversation in my online, the strengthening your relationship course, I do the same thing. I'm giving them a communication model that is as anchored as I can make it in their own integrity yeah. and self-confrontation before they even open their yap, you know, that they are dealing with themselves yeah. first rather than trying to get their self their spouse to buy into a view that's not even true. However, mm -hmm. one can do that model. So what that's to say, your model would work very well if it's two people who are really trying to deal honestly with themselves, be fair, yeah. and that model can just help them manage themselves through. So it can really be helpful. But what I think is that people can also use models, whether yours or mine, to not deal with themselves. Oh, to, you yes. know what I mean? Like they can go through the... The letter of the law, but not the spirit Absolutely, of the law. Absolutely, Jennifer. Right. I say they weaponize the tool. And what's interesting then is in the, again, I, I, I found myself working with a lot of emotionally immature or narcissistic traded and tendency people in surprise yeah. because I have a podcast that has narcissism in the name. So I'm not, <laughs> yeah. I'm not shocked by that. But, the, but I feel like even the having a framework has allowed people to then see that the emotionally mature person can't play in the sandbox, that they're so special that when they tell me how crazy their wife is, even I will put away my beloved four pillars. And now we will join in triangulation and let her know yeah. how bad she is. And, and I feel like that's what you end up seeing kind of back to what we were saying earlier versus the person saying, oh my gosh, I didn't know what I didn't know. Here's a tool. Let's use it. And then I do. I feel like that's the part where Oh, and then the, and then it's our brains love to unicorns. do that. I mean, we all do that. Just start using the words differentiation and self-regulation. Oh. You sound like you're <laughs> really, you know, and I love ideas too. I'd much rather talk about ideas than actually go through the horrors of self-confrontation. I mean, who wants to do that? But <laughs> yeah, but, you know, oh, but in, I mean, right. So it's easy to talk about ideas. Christ talked about this. We love the, the letter of the law. Spirit of the law is much harder. Yeah, it is. Yes. Yeah. I love it, man. Jennifer. Okay. Th thank you. This was so fun because in, when we look back on today's interview, it was, it was kind what of ADD like, which is, uh, it was, it was every, everything, which to me that felt so satisfying. And exactly. So thank you so much for meeting me where I'm at. What a joy. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I just looked down, I can't even, I feel like it was been 30 minutes. And so thank you. And I would love to have you on. I'll do the research now on ADHD and relationships and, yeah. and then, man, I would love to have you back on and talk about sure. that too. That would be fun. Okay. 
All right. Okay. Thanks so much. Great. It's always good to see you. You're welcome. Okay. okay talk okay. to you. All right. Thanks so much. Perfect. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Compressed emotions flying past. Our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind. It's wonderful. Elastic waste and rubber ghost. I'm floating past the midnight hour. They push aside the things that matter most. It's Explore.